0: Hello, world. This is Codebreaker. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. A day in the life of encryption starts when a day in my life starts. Encryption happens in bed while I am checking my messages on WhatsApp because my buddy in Singapore sends me messages while I am sleeping. Usually, I just look at my phone and read and pet my cat. Then I get out of bed. Uh, I think I'm going to check my Gmail. Encryption. I need a new water bottle, so I'm going to go on Amazon, put it in my shopping cart. Encryption. I'm going to stop at the ATM and get some cash. Encryption. Get in a cab, pay, encryption. All day, every day. Sending things over the internet, communicating with friends, taking money out of the bank, buying goods, paying for services. None of this is possible without encryption. Encryption. It's all around us. But do we really understand how it works and why it matters? On Codebreaker, we decipher our complicated feelings about technology with a sense of humor, a sense of awe, and hey, sometimes a sense of dread. This season, it's all about four little words with a question mark at the end.
1: Oh, jeez. Oh. uh, Uh.
0: (laughs) I hope so. Can it save us? We are asking this question about one kind of technology in every episode. Today, a guy in 18th century Paris who used encryption to sucker rich travelers into spending more money, how a debate about encryption keys gets complicated when you're talking about who you are versus what you know, and someone who sees encryption as a civil right.
2: Black Lives Matter activists more than ever need to encrypt.
0: So, encryption. Can it save us? Hey, don't forget, there's a special code in every one of our episodes, so listen closely. Encryption is complicated and sometimes controversial. We have a right to privacy, but there can also be a cost to that right. We use encryption all the time. Most of us barely understand what it is or how it works. I mean, barely. And I'm the same way, even though I'm thinking about encryption all the time as a tech journalist. So let's start with some basics with help from Susan Landau.
1: Well, we all use it and know it from being small children. We try to hide messages.
0: Susan's got a lot of titles. She's worked at Google, Sun Microsystems. She's written multiple books on cybersecurity. She is in the Cybersecurity Hall of Fame. These days, she's a cybersecurity policy professor at Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Massachusetts and talking to noobs like me.
1: If we think about the amount of information we have online, and more importantly, how we control things online, we control the power grid online, we do banking online. We have our healthcare information online. Some of that information is private, but some of that information needs to be secured for the safety of individuals and the safety of society. And so encryption is as much about security as it is about privacy.
0: Okay, so how do we keep things secret online? There are a bunch of different types of encryption, they're different in the way they protect information, how they scramble and let you unscramble it. It's complicated, but Susan says the easiest way to think about this is a simple code. Here's a really basic one.
1: One way you do it, uh, uh, a system that's been around for thousands of years is the Caesar shift. You take the alphabet and you shift it a few letters. So the shifting is what we call the algorithm, the method for encryption. How much you shift, whether you shift by two letters and A becomes a C, or three letters and A becomes a D, um, that amount of shift is called the key. And in cryptography, you let the algorithm be known, but you keep the key secret.
0: So the Caesar shift, moving the alphabet a few letters, maybe three, is simple. But when you're sharing your credit card information, health files, or a personal email, the level of encryption gets a lot more complicated.
1: When you work in encryption and you work in security, you always think, how could somebody break this? Uh, you become either like a little kid or a, a, a snarky ca- counterintelligence agency. Sure. If you're going to do good security, you have to think, well, how? You know, I know how this is going to work. How can it be broken? And if you don't think about how it can be broken, then you're not doing your job.
0: One of the things that's interesting about encryption is that it's this tool that constantly inspires people to find new ways to break it. So it's always being undermined. If it's always being undermined, should we do away with it? You think it's fundamental to the modern world?
1: I don't see any way around it. It is the one tool that makes it hard when somebody takes a piece of information for them to actually understand what the information is about.
0: Susan Landau, she's an author and cybersecurity expert. These days, when we think about encryption, we think computers. But it's not a new idea. It's as old as the idea of privacy itself. One of the weirdest stories I have ever heard about encryption is from 200 years before the first computers were even a thing. And I heard it from this guy.
3: Okay, hold on one minute. Okay, now it is, it is recording. Okay.
0: That is Gerhard Strasser. He is a retired professor from Penn State University, and he has been studying encryption for decades. He lives in Germany, so he called him up on the phone. This story starts with the Count of Vergen, a French diplomat in the 1700s.
3: Vergen, of course, should be almost a household word in the United States, since he was the foreign secretary under Louis XVI.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. The Count of Vergen, Louis XVI, totally know all about that. Gerhard says the story of the Count of Vergen is one of the cruelest examples of using encryption he has ever heard.
3: And the system was mean, or if you wish in technical terms, it was a perfect example of uh, steganography.
0: Steganography, the idea that you can conceal information and messages in plain sight. In this case, the hiding place was passports, or at least the version of passports during the rule of Louis XVI. It's a document. If you saw one of these things, it would look like one of those oval-shaped frames that might be on a title page of an old book or maybe even in a museum. It's got these little garlands and little flowers wrapping around it in this really intricate design, and each one is different.
3: The cards contained messages, hidden messages, obviously, that were so unbelievably detailed.
0: Detailed with information about the passport holder.
3: Was he in Lisbon? Was he a priest? Was he in the military? Was he a merchant? Was he a lover? Was he uh, indeed trying to marry a French lady? All of that was embedded in the frame.
0: All of this information would be the result of an investigation into the passport holder's life. It doesn't stop there.
3: Is he fat? Is he uh, handsome? Is he tall? Is he intelligent looking, but fat? Is he intelligent looking and slim? Uh, Does he have flat feet just about?
0: What was the reason for all this? Well, it was a complicated time. The American Revolution was happening. Spying and intelligence gathering was important. But there was a financial reason.
3: Wealthy people were actually calmed, you might say, into staying as long as possible. And their, uh, you might say, purpose was delayed so that they would spend money.
0: It's such a that strange was, thing.
3: <laughs> that was unbelievable. If you were, If you only had four stars instead of 12, indicating your wealth, then they would let you go. And if you were considered poor, they'll try to get rid of you as soon as possible.
0: Why did, why did Vergen do this?
3: The system under uh, Louis XVI, of course, uh, tax collection was miserable. They needed every single penny. And, of course, foreign currency was highly welcome.
0: Gerhard says the whole process of hiding this information and encoding it in plain sight was an impressive feat, In a way, it was almost diabolically beautiful. So many people had to know about what meant what. It's almost a shame it was used to cheat people out of their money. Eventually, Vergen went away, but the idea continued.
3: The system, the idea survived uh, the beheading of the king, if you wish, and was continued under Napoleon.
0: Napoleon, who, as it turns out, really needed to use spying and intelligence gathering to do what he was doing— Part of a long history of governments using encryption to protect secrets. Gerhard Strasser, thank you very much for talking to me.
3: Well, thank you very much, Ben, for calling up and uh, uh, good luck with that uh, segment, Ben. Thank you so much
4: for calling.
0: Knock, knock. Who's there?
1: We'll be right back.
0: When encryption works, sender and receiver are the only two parties that get access to private information because they have the keys to unlock it and to unscramble it. But what happens when someone can make them turn the key in the lock? Remember the massive fight between Apple and the FBI over unlocking the iPhone that was used by the San Bernardino shooters? It was a huge public fight. We've probably never seen a higher profile conversation about encryption and what the rules about unlocking information should be. In the end, the FBI figured out a way to crack into the phone without forcing Apple to try to break the device's encryption. We moved on. But the proxy battles in this war over how and when the government can break encryption are far from over. This debate is still playing out in the court system, and there's a bit of a wrinkle. Sarus faravar senior business editor at Ars Technica, has been looking at this. Sarus, how are you? Great. How are you? I'm pretty good. How do we figure this out? Part of this is tricky because of the kinds of cases that are involving this stuff and, and whether or not the information around those cases is public. Right. That's very, very true. The question in
5: that case was, you know, can Apple be forced to assist the government in a way it does not want to uh, to open up this phone? While I was reporting this story, I spoke with a lawyer at the ACLU of Massachusetts, a guy by the name of Matt Siegel, and he was sort of pointing out that what was interesting about San Bernardino, unlike nearly all of these other cases, those court proceedings and discussions have happened more or less in the dark, and and he says that's sort of problematic.
6: Whatever you think of where the law should land. It makes an enormous difference if the debate about it is public or not. I mean, we saw that with the outcry about the FBI versus Apple situation. As soon as the public learned about the government's efforts to force Apple to get into this phone, the sort of tide turned.
0: All right, so so some people use this stuff, some people don't. But you're focused, Sarus, on this one this one distinction that actually has weight in the legal world, and it's about what you are versus what you know.
5: Right. So in the united states constitution we have this uh you know it's the fifth amendment this is the idea to protect people against self-incrimination right so the idea is that if i'm suspected of a crime the government can't force me to testify against myself the u.s legal system does allow for the government to compel me to turn over physical characteristics of me right they can force me to provide a handwriting sample they can force me to provide a fingerprint so when we get down to phones there's this idea that a biometric, right, what you are, your fingerprint, is different, viewed differently under the law as what you know, right, a traditional alphanumeric password as a lot of other people like you use on your phone.
0: And Cyrus, so you've actually talked to some people who have thought a lot about this particular distinction.
5: Yeah, uh, one of the most prominent thinkers and lawyers uh, in the world of privacy law is a woman by the name of Marsha Hoffman. She's a lawyer based in San Francisco. She used to work at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. She wrote about how a fingerprint may not and probably does not give as much Fifth Amendment protection to people as a traditional passcode would.
4: We created this protection so that you cannot be forced to basically tell the government what's in your mind uh, in a way that they could then use that against you. And in effect, that shifts the burden to the government to go out and find evidence of your guilt or your possible guilt um, that is out there in the world. And they can't rely on you to basically put yourself in prison.
0: So should we do it or not? Should we use the fingerprint key lock or not? I think lots of people in the legal community uh, come down on
5: both sides of that question. People like Matt Siegel say that they want to have the best protection that they can. You know, don't use the fingerprint scanner for that reason. But, you know, Marsha Hoffman, for all of her thinking about this issue, she actually does use the fingerprint scanner on her iPhone.
4: You have to think about yourself in your own circumstances and what is right for you. What I think probably makes the most sense is... Uh, if you're going to use biometrics, use them not as a password, but as a user ID. That's really what they're meant for, right? They show that you are you and then have the password be some element uh, reflecting something you know.
0: Sort of a two-factor authentication, if you will. Exactly. Where do you think this is going? I mean, are we going to get to a point where everybody is using biometrics because we've been convinced by device makers that that's the most secure way to go forward?
5: I think it's going to be very difficult uh, for us to continue in the way that we've been doing. I think passwords are difficult for, for a lot of people to use. And that's why uh, there are different things that make it very easy, like fingerprints, right? Obviously, you're not going to forget your fingerprint as a password. But I think for that reason, that's one of the, I think, one of the potential downsides of using your fingerprints as a password uh, is that, you know, your fingerprint can't be changed, right? Like if somebody, uh, you know, somehow forges your fingerprints and that's been done, in Germany and many other places, uh, you know that could be potentially problematic. So I think I think we're going to start to see more two-factor authentication using, as you say, biometrics as one of those elements, but not just the key that opens all the doors.
0: Do you think biometric encryption is going to be an area that will
5: explode? To me, it doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility that, you know, in five or 10 years from now, we'll have, you know, on our phones, or on our computers, not just fingerprint scanners, but maybe retinal scanners, maybe even potentially DNA scanners. Maybe you could imagine you have some sort of, you know, physical safe, you know, in your house that you keep important documents or, or whatever in uh, that is only opened through some sort of DNA signature, you know, as as biometric capabilities rapidly expand uh, in terms of their sophistication, their use by law enforcement, I think, is all but inevitable. You know, we as the public need to be sort of aware as to where do we draw the line of
0: privacy and and constitutional rights. Sarus Varvar, a senior business editor at the website Ars Technica. Sarus, thanks a lot, man. My pleasure. The state's argument for accessing people's phones is usually to protect us from crime or terrorism. But lots of people think encryption is a tool to protect them from state surveillance. That's the perspective of Malkia Cyril. She's the executive director of the Center for Media Justice and a Black Lives Matter activist.
2: Throughout history, black dissidents has been... Uh, discouraged black dissidents has been criminalized so today in the 21st century at a time when black voices are rising black people are saying that our lives have meaning our futures matter we want to see this country invest right in 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 justice and freedom and and, in in our ability to stay alive you know most basically And, and under those conditions Black dissidents must be protected. It's very clear to anybody who's paying any attention that the FBI of today is not very different from the FBI of the late 1960s, at least in its relationship to black dissidents. It polices black dissidents. It criminalizes black dissidents. And so Black Lives Matter activists more than ever need to encrypt.
0: I totally get the logic of wanting to be able to protect people with the use of encryption, especially activists, it also seems possible that some of these tools can and are being used for, for the opposite, right? That are being used by, you know, racist groups, members of a, a surveillance state um, that wish to do harm to the activists that you really want the, the state to
2: protect. I mean, you know, some people think it's complicated. To me, it's pretty simple. The fact of the matter is, will bad actors use encryption to do bad acts? Possibly. But it's more important to protect liberty. It's more important to protect freedom. It's more important to stand by. You can't say you're a nation of laws and then violate the human and civil rights of your citizens. (laughs) You know, that's just not, that just can't work. So, yeah, you know, can we balance, do we need to balance security and privacy? Sure. But the reality is that has never been true for someone like me. That wasn't true for my mother. That wasn't true for her mother. And it won't be true for my child.
0: Malkia Cyril is founder and executive director of the Center for Media Justice. Malkia, thank you very much for talking to me.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: No matter how much we depend on encryption, how much we might think in 2016 about protecting our privacy, scrambling information can allow for really horrible things to happen. The Associated Press's international security correspondent, Lori Hinnant, is trying to shine a light in some of the deepest shadows of the modern world. Example, her reporting on members of ISIS using encryption to buy and sell goods, including guns, explosives, and people, women and girls, on encrypted apps. If you think encryption is always a good thing, this is going to make you think twice. Hinnan's reporting first exposed this practice over the summer of 2016. We called her up to check in on this story and talk more about her feelings about encryption. Hi there. So what did you discover that was happening on these uh, encrypted messaging services that ISIS was doing with these uh, women and young girls?
7: What we discovered is that they were putting these women and young girls and sometimes very young sons essentially up for sale in marketplaces in which the fighters were also selling weapons, computer equipment, even sometimes camping equipment, and they were doing it all on encrypted chats in the app, primarily Telegram, and to some extent on WhatsApp.
0: What kind of descriptions are attached to these people who are being bought and sold?
7: Well, the descriptions, in addition to photos, include the age, includes how obedient or disobedient the person might be, includes their family situation.
0: How do you go about reporting on a story like this when so much of the content that you're reporting on is protected by end-to-end encryption?
7: Well, it is complicated. It requires finding somebody who is um, in one of those encrypted chats, which I have done on a number of occasions.
0: Do you essentially, like, look over their shoulder, or do they then invite you to the groups? How does it work?
7: No, I looked over their shoulder. So um, you can actually see the entire marketplace um, and scroll through it almost like you would an eBay listing where you just kind of go through and through and through or your own Facebook feed.
0: Can you talk a little bit about your impression of the tech companies that are making this possible and how they're responding to it?
7: Well, it varies from company to company. Um, Facebook, which is the owner of WhatsApp, has said that they're doing everything they can, aside from ending end-to-end encryption, to keep the girls from being sold or bartered on their application. Telegram is less inclined to make changes because the entire purpose of Telegram's existence is end-to-end communication. And I'm sorry, end-to-end encryption.
0: They say take a more sort of philosophical stance.
7: Yeah. they. One of the things that happened when the United States was revealed to be spying on people's communications is that it's not just jihadis who object to having their communications spied upon. There's plenty of ordinary people who simply want to be able to have private conversations without the fear of intrusion.
0: After reporting on this story, how do you feel about this, this idea of encryption?
7: I'm really conflicted about it, to be honest. I use it. I use it in my work, and I think it's important. But when you see these marketplaces with young girls and photos of girls and women being treated like absolute chattel It's really chilling and it leaves a lot of questions
0: if you had to choose
7: i don't know i think about it a lot and i i don't know
0: Lori hinnett is international security correspondent for the associated press laurie thank you very much for talking me through this story Thank you. We've learned how encryption is part of our daily lives and part of the daily lives of people in the 18th century, too. It helps activists do their work. How we crack it with our fingerprints or our minds and whether law enforcement can make us turn the key remains in question. Whether or not it can save us is up for debate, so let's hash it out with Marketplace reporter Sabri Beneshore.
6: Hey, Sabri, Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Do you use encryption? Uh, I mean, I don't use it knowingly. I think I use it like the rest of everybody who just... It's part of everything that I do, and I don't really... I'm not educated enough to know.
0: Yeah, I, feel, I felt the same way. It's almost like when you go to the mechanic, and the mechanic's like, oh, no, 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 you need, like... You yeah, need what, like twenty things done.
6: Yeah, what you need is to spend
0: more money. That's your problem. So Gerhard Strasser, the the German guy, what did you what did you think about his story?
6: Um, well, I thought he was hilarious.
0: Yeah. Actually, one of the really interesting things that uh, Gerhard Strasser talks about in some of his other work that I think you would actually really like, supposedly a really really ancient example of this: pieces of information protected by encryption was a recipe for a pottery glaze.
6: No way. Yes.
0: A metallic pottery glaze. Shut up. In, like, I think it was, like, um, Mesopotamia.
6: That's amazing. And that was serious intellectual property back then. I mean, you know, there are countries known for what did this, you know, magic glaze that they could produce or this color or that color. that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were countries sort of known by what they made. So
0: there's, of course, this other side of this, right? Like, you and I, I feel like, are on the same page about defaulting to protecting the privacy of regular citizens. But then we have this story from Lori Hinnant about how ISIS is using this. And obviously that's a situation that that complicates this question.
6: Yeah, it is. But at the same time, I mean, humans are capable of such monstrous things. Yeah. You know, human organizations. You put you put more than a couple humans together and the types of organizations they can create just with their bare hands. Humans are capable of of awful things and yeah. give them a baseball bat and they'll and they'll either play ball with it or bash someone's brain in. I
0: <sighs> You think it's worth it?
6: Oh, Gosh, when you phrase it like that. If we had backdoors to everything and and breakable encryption, then gosh, we could learn more about these markets and maybe prevent these markets from happening on a phone. Yeah. Well, we would also have no privacy for revolutionary movements and no privacy from an equally genocidal movement, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Because you're also saying, well, then give ISIS the ability to hack in everybody's computer, you know, in their in their realm. Right. And plus they're just gonna take their awful markets and have them you know in the town square or whatever, you know? yeah, yeah,
0: so do you think encryption can save us or privacy protected by encryption?
6: I think it can, you know, I really do think it can because we need that privacy, yeah, you need some kind of balance balance of power out there, I think let's keep let's <laughs> let's keep encryption, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we decided that for everybody, yeah.
0: Sabri Benashur, <laughs> reporter for Marketplace. Pro encryption? Yeah, I think so.
6: Thanks, Ben. Thank
0: you, Sabri. By the way, if you want access to all of this season's episodes, you don't have to wait for them to come out. You do have to find the code hidden in this episode, though. Some messages can be encrypted twice. Hopefully, you caught ours. It's up to you to decrypt the first layer. I gave you the key for the second. Once you get it, you can input the code at our website, codebreaker.codes, and unlock the next episode. Our show is produced by Claire Tennisgetter. Our senior producer is Golda Arthur. Our engineer, Jake Gorski. We got production support from Adrian Ma and Marketplace Tech producer, Stephanie Hughes. Sitara Nieves is Marketplace's executive producer. Our vice president is Deborah Clark. Our theme music is by Mux Mool. Our show is made in partnership with the nice folks at Tech Insider and their robot overlord, Dan Bobkoff. You can get updated on their stories and much more at businessinsider.com. Just don't believe what they say about us.
3: Is he fat? Is he intelligent looking? But fat, is he intelligent looking and slim?
0: I'm Ben Brock Johnson. Codebreaker is a Marketplace production from APM.